Section seven of The Crimson Circle by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter sixteen. Mr. Marl goes out. So you've come, eh? said Mr. Marl, rising to meet the girl. My word, but you look smart. And you look lovely, my dear, too. He took both her hands in his and led her into the little gold and white drawing room. Lovely he repeated in an almost hushed voice. I can tell you I was a little bit scared about taking you to the Ritz-Carlton. You don't mind my frankness, do you? Have a cigarette? He fumbled in the tail pocket of his dress coat, produced a large gold case, and opened it. You thought I'd turn up in one of Morn and Gillingsworth's six-guinea models, eh? She laughed as she lit the cigarette. Well, I did, my dear. I've had a lot of unhappy experiences, explained Marl, as he seated himself heavily in an armchair. I've had em turn up in queer clothes, I can tell you. Do you make a practice of entertaining the young and the fair? Thalia had seated herself on the big padded fireguard and was looking down at him under her half-closed lids. Well, said Mr. Marl complacently, rubbing his hands, I'm not so old that I don't get some pleasure out of ladies' society, but you're stunning. He was a blond, red-faced man with suspiciously brown hair, suspiciously even teeth, and for this evening he had acquired a waist which seemed wholly unreal. We're going to dinner, and then we'll go on and see the boys and the girls at the Windsor Palace, he said. And then, he hesitated, what do you say to a little supper? he asked. "'A little supper? I don't take supper,' said the girl. "'Well, you can pack a bit of fruit, I suppose,' suggested Mr. Marl. "'Where?' asked the girl steadily. "'Most of the restaurants are closed before the theatres are out, aren't they?' "'There's no reason why you shouldn't come back here. You're not a prude, my dear, are you?' "'Not much,' she confessed. "'I can see you home in my car.' he said. "'I've got my own car, thank you,' said the girl. And Mr. Marl's eyes opened. Then he began to laugh steadily at first, and his laughter ended in an asthmatical paroxysm. Presently he gasped, "'Oh, you wicked little devil!' The evening was an interesting one for Thalia, more interesting by reason of the fact that she caught a glimpse of Mr. Flush Barnett in the hall of the hotel as she passed through. It was after the theatre was over, and they were standing in the vestibule, waiting for the liftman to call their car, that Thalia showed some symptom of hesitation. But the eloquent Mr. Felix Marl overcame whatever reluctance she felt, and as the clock was striking the half-hour after eleven, she passed into the hall, not failing to notice that Mr. Marl did not ring for his servants, but let himself in with his own latch-key. The supper was laid in a rose-panelled dining-room. "'I will help you, my dear,' said Mr. Marl. "'We won't bother about the servants.' But she shook her head. "'I can eat nothing, and I think I'll go home now,' she said. "'Wait, wait,' he begged. "'I want to have a little talk with you about your boss. I can do you a lot of good in that firm, at the bank, Thalia. Who called you Thalia?' "'My godfathers and godmothers, M or N.' said Thalia, solemnly. 
and Mr. Marles squeaked his delight at her humour. He was passing behind her, ostensibly to reach one of the dishes which were set on the table, when he stooped and, had she not slipped from his grasp, would have kissed her. "'I think I'll go home,' said Thalia. "'Rubbish!' Mr. Marle was annoyed, and when Mr. Marle was annoyed, he forgot that he made any pretensions to gentle birth. "'Come and sit down.' She looked at him long and thoughtfully, and then, turning suddenly, went to the door and turned the handle. It was locked. "'I think you had better open this door, Mr. Marle,' she said quietly. "'I think not,' chuckled Mr. Marle. "'Now, Thalia, be the dear, good little girl I thought you were.' "'I should hate to dissipate any illusions you may have about my character,' said Thalia, coolly. "'You'll open that door, please.' "'Certainly.' He ambled toward the door, feeling in his pocket. Then, before she could realize his intention, he had seized her in his arms. He was a powerful man, a head taller than she, and his big hands gripped her arms like steel clamps. "'Let me go,' said Thalia, steadily. She did not lose her nerve, nor show the least sign of fear. Suddenly he felt her tense muscles relax. He had conquered. With a quick intake of breath he released his hold of the sullen girl. "'Let me have some supper,' she said, and he beamed. "'Now, my dear, you are being the little girl I—' "'What's that?' The last was a squeak of terror. She had strolled slowly to the table and had taken up the brocade bag. He had watched her and thought she was seeking a handkerchief. Instead, she had produced a small, black, egg-shaped thing, and with a flick of her left hand had pulled out a small pin and dropped the pin onto the table. He knew what it was. He had dabbled in army supplies and had seen many Mills bombs. "'Put it down! No, no, put the pin in, you young fool!' he whimpered. "'Don't worry,' she said coolly. "'I have a spare pin in my bag. Open that door.' His hand shook like a man with palsy as he fumbled at the keyhole. Then he turned and blinked at her. "'A mills bomb,' he mumbled, and fell back an obese mass of quivering flesh against the delicate panelling. Slowly she nodded. "'A mills bomb,' she said softly, and went out still gripping the lever of the deadly egg-like thing. He followed her to the door and slammed it after her, then went shakily up the stairs to his bedroom. Flush Barnett, standing in the shadow of a clothes-press, heard the click of locks and the snap of a bolt as Mr. Marl entered his room. The house was still. Through the thick door of Mr. Marl's bedroom no sound came. There was no transom to the door, and the only evidence that there was somebody in his room was afforded by a fret of light in the ceiling of the passage, which came through a ventilator in the wall of the bedroom. During the war this house had been used as an officer's convalescent home, and certain hygienic arrangements had been introduced, which were more useful than beautiful. Flush crept softly in his stockinged feet to the door and listened. He thought he heard the man talking to himself, and looked around for some means by which he could obtain a view of the room. There was a small oaken table in the corridor, and he placed this against the wall and mounted. His eyes came to the level of the ventilator, and he looked down upon Mr. Marl, pacing the room in his shirt-sleeves, obviously disturbed. Then Flush Barnett heard a sound. 
just a faint hush-hush of feet on a carpet, and he slipped down, walked quickly along the corridor, passing the head of the stairs. The hall below was in darkness, but he felt rather than saw a figure on the stairway. Whether it was man or woman he could not say, and did not stop to discover. It might be one of the servants returning furtively. Servants did not always stay away when they were bidden. Flush passed to the farther end of the corridor, and from an angle in the wall watched. He saw nobody pass the head of the stairs, but there was no background. After a while he crept back again. There was nothing to be gained by forcing the door of Marl's bedroom, even if it were possible. He had had time to inspect the house at his leisure, and he had already decided upon investigating the little safe in the library, for Mr. Marl's own room had drawn blank. The investigation, which took two hours, and the employment of one of the best sets of tools in the profession, was not unprofitable. But it did not reveal the huge sum of money which he anticipated. He hesitated. The night was too far through to make an attempt on the bedroom, even if he had not already searched it from wall to wall. He folded his kit and slipped it into one pocket, his loot into another, and went upstairs again. There was no sound from Marl's room, but the light was still on. He tried to look through the keyhole, but the key was still there. The only inducement there was for him to enter the room was the possibility that the money was in the man's clothes. This likelihood was remote, he thought. Possibly Marl had taken it to some safe deposit, a contingency which Barnett had foreseen. He went slowly down the stairs, through the hall and the butler's pantry, to the side door, where he had left his boots, his overcoat, and his shiny silk hat, for he was in evening dress. Then he stole softly forth along the covered passageway, running by the side of the house. Here a door opened into the little forecourt of Marl's house. He reached the garden, and his hand was on the gate, when somebody touched him, and he spun round. "'I want you, Flush,' said a well-remembered voice. "'Inspector Parr, you may remember me.' "'Parr!' gasped the bewildered Barnett and with an oath wrenched himself free and leapt through the gate, but the three policemen who were waiting for him were not so easy to dispose of, and they marched Flush Barnett to the nearest police station, a worried man. In the meantime, Parr conducted a search of his own. Accompanied by a detective, he made his way to the hall of the house and up the stairs. "'This is the only room occupied, apparently,' he said, and knocked at the door. There was no reply." "'Go along and see if you can rouse any of the servants,' said Parr. The man came back with the startling information that there were no servants in the house. "'There's somebody here,' said the old inspector, and flashing his lamp along the corridor, he saw the table, and with an agility remarkable in one of his age, he leapt up and peered through the ventilator. "'I can just see somebody asleep,' he said. "'Hi, wake up,' he called, but there was no reply.' Hammering on the door did not produce any response. "'Go down and see if you can find a hatchet. We'll break open the door,' said Parr. "'I don't like this.' Hatchet there was none, but they found a hammer. "'Can you show a light, Mr. Parr?' asked the man, and the inspector flashed his lamp on the door. It was a white door, white except for the crimson circle affixed to a panel as by a rubber stamp. "'Break in the door,' said Parr, breathing heavily. For five minutes they smashed at a panel before they finally hammered it through, and the sleeper within gave no sign of consciousness. 
Parr reached his hand through the door, turned the key, and, by dint of stretching, found the bolt at the top. He slipped into the room. The light was still burning, and its rays fell across the man on the bed, who lay upon his back, a twisted smile on his face, most obviously dead. Chapter 17 The Blower of Bubbles It was long after midnight, and Derek Yale was sitting in his pretty little study. He lived in a flat overlooking the park. When the knock came to the door, and he rose to admit Inspector Parr. Parr related the incident of the evening. "'But why didn't you tell me?' asked Derek, a little reproachfully, and then laughed. "'I'm sorry,' he said. "'I always seem to be butting in on your affairs. But how came the murderer to escape? You say you had had the house surrounded for two hours. Did the girl come out?' "'Undoubtedly. She came out and drove home.' "'And nobody else went in?' "'I wouldn't like to swear that.' said Pa. Whoever was in the house had probably arrived long before Marl returned from the theatre. I have since discovered that there was a way out through the garage at the back of the house. When I said the house was surrounded, that was an exaggeration. There was a way through the back garden which I did not know. I didn't even suspect there were gardens there. Undoubtedly he went through the garage door. Do you suspect the girl at all? Parr shook his head. "'Why were you surrounding Marl's house at all?' asked Derek Yale seriously. The answer was as unexpected as it was sensational. "'Because Marl has been under police observation ever since he came back to London,' said Parr. "'In fact, ever since I discovered that he was the man who wrote the letter, the scrap of which I found, and which I compared last week with his writing, I asked him for the address of his tailor.' "'Marl?' said the other, incredulously. Inspector Parr nodded. I don't know what there was between old man Beardmore and Marl, or what brought him to the house. I've been trying to reconstruct the scene. You may remember that when Marl came to the house on a visit, he was suddenly seized with a panic. I remember, nodded Yale. Jack Beardmore told me about it. Well? He refused to stay at the house, said he was going back to London, said Parr. As a matter of fact, he went no farther than Kingside, which is a station some eight or nine miles away. He sent his bag on to London and came back by road. He was probably the person whom the murderer saw in the wood that night. Now why had he come back if he was so scared that he ran away in the first place? And why did he write that letter for delivery in the night when he had every opportunity to tell James Beardmore by day when he was with him? There was a long silence. "'How was Marl killed?' asked Yale. The other shook his head. "'That's a mystery to me. The murderer could not possibly have entered the room. I had an interview with Flush Barnett, as yet he knows nothing about the murder, and he admits he broke in for the purpose of burglary. He says he heard the sound of somebody moving about the house, and very naturally hid himself. He also says he heard a strange hissing sound, like air escaping from a pipe.' Another remarkable clue was a round, wet patch on the pillow, within a few inches of the dead man's hand. It was exactly circular. At first I thought it was a symbol of the crimson circle, until I discovered another patch on the counterpane. The doctor has not been able to diagnose the cause of death, but the motive is clear. According to his banker, 
I've just been talking to Brabazon on the telephone. He drew a large sum of money from the bank yesterday. In fact, Brabazon closed his account. They had a quarrel over something or other. The safe was, of course, opened by Flush Barnett, but there was no money found on him when he was searched at the police station. Curiously enough, we did discover several little oddments that Flush had picked up. Now, who took the money? Derek Yale paced the floor, his hands behind him, his chin on his breast. Do you know anything of Brabazon? he asked. The other did not reply immediately. Only that he is a banker and does a lot of foreign work. Is he solvent? asked Derek Yale, bluntly. And the inspector raised his dull eyes slowly until they were on a level with the others. No, he said. I don't mind telling you that we've had one or two complaints about his methods. Were they good friends, Marl and Brabazon? Fairly good, was the hesitating reply. The impression I have from reports is that Marl had some hold over Brabazon. And Brabazon was insolvent, mused Derek Yale. And this afternoon Marl closes his account. In what circumstances? Did he come to the bank? Briefly, the detective explained what had happened. It seemed that there was precious little that did happen at Brabazon's bank that he did not know. Derek Yale was beginning to respect this man, whom at first he had regarded, with a good-natured scorn, as a little stupid. "'I wonder if it would be possible for me to go to Marl's house tonight.' "'I came to suggest that,' said the other. "'In fact, I kept a cab waiting at the door with that idea.' Derek Yale did not speak during the journey to Bayswater, and it was not until he stood in the hall of the house in Marisburg Place that he broke the silence. "'We ought to find a small steel cylinder somewhere,' he said slowly. The policeman standing on duty in the hall came forward and saluted the inspector. "'We found an iron bottle in the garage, sir,' he said. "'Ah!' cried Derek Yale triumphantly. "'I thought so.' He almost ran up the stairs ahead of the detective and paused in the passage, which was now lighted. The little oak table stood against the ventilator, and toward that he moved. Then he went down on his hands and knees and sniffed the carpet. Presently he choked and coughed and got up, red in the face. "'Let me see that cylinder,' he said. They brought it to him. The policeman's description of it as a bottle was nearer the truth. It was an iron bottle, at the end of which was a small pipe— to which was attached a tiny turnkey. "'And now there ought to be a cup somewhere,' he said, looking round, "'unless he brought it in a bottle.' "'There was a small glass bottle in the garage near this, sir,' said the policeman who had found it. "'It's broken, though.' "'Bring it to me quickly,' said Yale. "'I can only hope that it isn't so completely smashed that none of its contents are left.' The stout Mr. Parr was regarding him somberly. "'What is all this about?' he asked, and Derek Yale chuckled. "'A new way of committing a murder, my dear Mr. Parr,' he said airily. "'Now let us go into the room.' The body of Marl lay on the bed, covered by a sheet, and the circular patch of wet on the pillow had not dried. The windows were open, and a fitful wind kept the curtains fluttering. "'Of course you can't smell it here,' said Yale, speaking to himself and again went on his knees and nosed the carpet, and again he coughed and rose hurriedly. 
By this time they had returned with the lower half of a glass bottle. It contained a few drops of liquid, and this Yale poured into his hand. "'Soap and water,' he said. "'I thought it would be. "'And now I'll explain how Mar was killed. "'Your thief, Flush Barnett, heard a hissing sound. "'It was the sound of a heavy gas escaping from this cylinder. "'I may be wrong, but I should imagine there is enough poison gas in that little iron bottle "'to settle your account and mine. "'It is still lying on the floor, by the way. "'It is one of those heavy gases which descend.' "'But how did it kill Marl? Did they pump it through the grating onto his head?' Derrick Yale shook his head. "'It is a much simpler and a much more deadly method which the Crimson Circle employed,' he said quietly. "'They blew bubbles.' "'Bubbles?' Derrick Yale nodded. "'The end of this cylinder, you can still feel the slime of soap upon it, was first dipped into the soap solution.' then thrust through the grating. The tap was turned down and a bubble formed, which was shaken off. From the ventilator, he ran outside and jumped onto the table. Yes, I thought so, he said. He could see Marl's head. Two or three of the bubbles must have been failures. One struck the pillow, but I should imagine that that was blown after his death. One struck the wall. He'll find the wet patch but one, and probably more, burst on his face. He must have been killed almost instantaneously. Parr could only gape. I thought it all out on the way here. The circular patch on the pillow reminded me of my own boyish exploits, and their disastrous effect when I started blowing bubbles in the bedroom. And then when you mentioned the ventilator and the hissing noise, I was perfectly certain that my theory was right. But, "'We smelt no gas when we came into the room,' said Parr. "'The wind may have blown away the fumes,' said Derrick Yale. "'But apart from that, the weight of the gas would send it to the floor, "'and by its own density it would spread evenly. "'Look!' He struck a match, shielded it for a moment until it caught light, "'and then slowly brought it to the floor level. "'An inch from the carpet, the match was suddenly extinguished. "'I see,' said Inspector Parr. "'Now, what about searching the place? Perhaps I can be of use,' suggested Yale. But his offer of help did not meet with any very gracious response. A small police audience, which had listened awe-stricken while Yale had developed his theory, could understand the inspector's feelings. Apparently, Yale did too, for with a good-humoured laugh he made his excuses and went home. There are moments when the headquarters police should be left alone with their own emotions.' Nobody realized this more than Derek Yale. End of section seven.